If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. And if you're sitting there and you didn't bring a Bible, or you're sitting there and you're thinking, I brought a Bible but I haven't cracked it in years, I just brought it because I thought that's what I should do if I can go into church. Don't be proud, just use the table of contents and look up 1 Peter. There's no shame in that. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I'll, I'll read for you, have no fear. And if you're new to church, I, I want to remind you that when the Word of God is read, God is talking, God is speaking, and then when I preach from this passage, I'm simply going to try to give the sense or explain what God has already said, okay? But the most important words you'll hear on a Sunday are when the Word of God is read. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Heavenly Father, please take that word and use it to ground our identity and our mission in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do that this morning and you would empower me to give the sense of this text. Thank you for being a speaking God, that you are not silent, and that you're already speaking all over the place this morning. We love you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned this last Sunday, but I'll remind us again this morning that that a sense of community is one of our deepest felt needs as human beings. And it's no wonder, in light of that, that that so many organizations market themselves as a place where you, too, can find a sense of belonging. So all kinds of groups out there, I mentioned REI last week, offer connection with like-minded people and a purpose greater than ourselves. 
And so the question that we're, we're asking and looking to God's word to help us answer for four weeks here in May and early June is simply this. What is it that makes the community of the church any different? Are, are we just one more like a Golden Corral buffet? <laughs> one more organization saying, come here and find belonging. Come here and find a sense of place. Come here and find community. Or is the local church and churches like Kingsway a community like no other? Last week, we learned from Ephesians 2 that the church has a unique identity. Every other form of community we create for ourselves. That's what every other organization on the planet does. They're creating community for themselves. The church is a community God creates for us, right? By reconciling us to God and then uniting us to one another through the person and work of Christ. And in that sense, community isn't first something that we do, it's who we are. It is something we do, but we only do it because it's who we first are. It's our identity in Christ. And the second answer to that question, first we have a unique identity, comes from this text in 1 Peter 2, 4-12. Because we don't just have a unique identity, friends. We have a unique identity and a unique mission. And it's the relationship between those two things, our unique identity and our unique mission, that I want to focus on this morning. Because in this passage, in these verses that I read from 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter reminds us that that the community that we enjoy, it's not an end in and of itself. It's a gift in service of the mission of the gospel. It's not an end in of itself. It's a gift and service of the mission of the gospel. Just an illustration as I introduce this idea. After several years of climbing ladders and straining my neck every summer, typically mid-June when all the pollen's done, um, I finally requested and received a 30-foot extension wand for my pressure washer. Collapses down to about 7 feet for storage. Now imagine having received that extension wand, that I hung it in my garage and left it there. Year after year after year. Whenever I I walked by it on my way into the house, I said, man, what a great looking extension wand. But I never used it. It just sat there. Was it a gift? Yes! Was it a gift designed to hang for all eternity in my garage? No, right? It was a gift designed and built and given and intended to accomplish something. What is that? To blast all the mold off my second story vinyl siding. It was a gift with a goal. And the community of the church is no different. It's a gift designed to accomplish something. It's designed to advance the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter helps us understand why that's the case by making several points in these verses about our identity and mission as the people of God. Point number one, the people of God are defined by their relationship to Jesus. People of God are defined, characterized, identified, marked and set apart by their relationship to Jesus. Look at verse 4. Because Peter begins this section by reminding his readers that something extraordinary has happened to them. What does he say? As you come to him. They're coming to him. They're coming to him. Who's the him? 
Well, we know from verse 3 that the hymn is who? It's the Lord. They're coming to the Lord. They're drawing near to God. They're, they're approaching God and enjoying the gift of relationship with God. But, but please notice, friend, keep your eyes on verse 4. It's not just any old God or, or some sort of mysterious spiritual power. They're not just getting in touch with the divine or whatever God they want to be out there. They're in relationship. They're drawing near to the Lord who is what? A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. It's not God in general or the idea of the divine in general. It's Jesus Christ. The living stone, the one his readers are drawing near to, the one they're following, is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, crucified, and resurrected. How do we know the living stone is Jesus? Two reasons. First, Jesus himself tells us. So he quotes Matthew 21, 42, one of the Old Testament passages that Peter himself quotes in verses 6 to 8. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Whenever he says that, it, the sarcasm is just dripping. <laughs> you should have read. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And in case that's not quite clear enough, in Acts 4.11, Peter himself explicitly identifies Jesus as the rejected cornerstone. What does he say? This Jesus is the stone. <laughs> Pretty clear. That was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whenever the word of God compares God, in this case the eternal Son of God, to a symbol of some kind, a physical symbol in our world, that's not designed to confuse us. That's designed to help us. Because just like a parable, it helps us understand something about who God is, who Jesus is, and who we are in light of him. And we need to remember that, that the whole book of 1 Peter, it was written as a letter to Christians who were being persecuted. They were being socially rejected on account of their faith. So why would Peter, given that's who he's writing to, describe Jesus as a living stone rejected by men? It's because it reminds his readers that they're not alone. <laughs> they're not alone. They shouldn't be surprised by their suffering. Why not? Because God himself was socially rejected and scorned when he walked the earth. But that rejection wasn't his identity. In reality, in the, in the sight of God, in the sight of the one whose evaluation ultimately matters, who was Jesus? Jesus was chosen and precious. Was he rejected? Is he still rejected today? Are his people rejected and scorned today in all kinds of ways? Yes. But was that his identity? No. Who was he in the evaluation of the one whose evaluation ultimately matters? He was chosen and precious. So does that mean, Peter, that if I'm belittled and scorned on account of my faith in Christ, that I too am chosen and precious? Can I just assume that? Well, look at verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, what's going on in Isaiah 28? You've got to know the context here. Okay, when the prophet Isaiah wrote Isaiah 28, the whole nation of Israel was being threatened by foreign armies, especially Babylonians. 
and destruction was imminent, but the leaders of Israel kept saying, everything's okay. We're, we're just going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we've got this annoying prophet named Isaiah who keeps saying, God is about to judge you on account of your continual disobedience, and rightly so. But he's just a religious nutcase. Another one of those guys. Just ignore him. It's all good. Our military alliance with Egypt, picture of human ingenuity and power, is going to take care of us. We're going to be fine. Well, what does the Lord do? He responds through Isaiah by saying, guys, you're quite wrong. You're dead wrong. It's not those who trust in Egypt to be delivered from the righteous judgment of God who will be saved. It's those who trust in the Lord himself to deliver us from the righteous judgment of God who are saved. And that honor is reserved, look at verse 6, verse 7, exclusively for those who believe in him. So the, the very context of Isaiah 28 teaches us that although Jesus was rejected by men, and Jesus is still rejected by men today, he is in reality the very cornerstone, the very foundation of God's plan to save mankind from his righteous judgment against our sin. That's what Isaiah 28 will tell you. So Christian, you might feel shameful. You might feel rejected and backwards and and weird. And and sometimes maybe you wonder, is everybody else in the world right? And I'm the one who's just deluded. I want to ask you to raise your hand if you thought that. but, But we can feel that sometimes, right? But what does the Lord promise us? What does he promise us, Christian? He promises us that those who believe in Jesus won't just avoid shame in the end, they'll be honored in the end, right? They'll be vindicated, they'll be upheld and delivered. The honor is for you who believe when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. So Christian, you might be shamed by men right now, but ultimately you are going to be honored by God no less than Christ was. But for those who do not trust and follow Jesus, who who try to save themselves just like Israel by either keeping all the rules, some of us like to do that, or breaking all the rules, some of us like to try that approach. Listen to verse 7, where Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that tell you, friend? That tells you that it's not your belief in Jesus that makes him who he is. It's not. In a postmodern age, we can think like that. It's whatever is true is whatever I believe is true because there's nothing by which we can know what is true beyond my belief. That is nonsense. We have the word of God to tell us what's true. And whether or not you believe Jesus or reject Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation. He's the only one who can deliver you from the the righteous wrath of God against our sins. That's who he is. Whether you believe him or reject him, that doesn't change reality. And if you reject his one and only son, listen, not, not just through conscious personal animosity, or hatred. Maybe you find yourself thinking, I'm not a hater. Like, Jesus is cool. It's not the only way to reject him. You can reject Jesus through passive dismissal 
of the extraordinary claims he makes on your life. You do that, you will stumble and fall and perish. And when Peter quotes the very end of verse 8, from Isaiah 8, 14, he confirms there are only two options for every human being who's ever lived. You can either believe Jesus, follow him, obey him, and be saved, or you can reject him and be destroyed. Two options. And how you respond to him, friend, is the single most important decision you will ever make. Because Jesus is divisive. You realize that? He's divisive. He may have welcomed children into his arms, but no one is more divisive than him. No relationship is is more determinative. You will either run to him as the only rock of refuge from the judgment of God, or you will reject him and that rock will crush you. Two options. Isaiah 8.13 But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, first thing, to those who trust him, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, second thing, to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they'll be snared, and they'll be taken. You can't avoid dealing with Jesus. He's either your sanctuary or he's your judge. And Christian, when you feel the sting of the world's hatred because Jesus is divisive, maybe you don't feel that just through outright vitriol or anger, but but you feel that through this acute awareness that everything you believe has pretty much just been written off and set aside in the public square as old-fashioned, fundamentalist, dangerous, and just worthless. You feel that. Take comfort in knowing that the rejection of Jesus and his followers and even the world's shameless disobedience of God's word, that too falls under the good and perfect providence of God. That, that rejection, that sense of shame, that sense of, am I, am I just like the odd man out? Well, yeah, because you're an exile and a sojourner and a stranger on this earth once you've been united with Jesus Christ in this world. But take heart at the end of verse 8 when Peter says they disobey the word as they were destined to. That that doesn't excuse the world's moral responsibility. That encourages you as a follower of Christ to take comfort in God's sovereignty. Because all in all, Peter's main point is really simple. Really simple. The people of God are not defined by their good works, their political conservatism, Ready for this? Their Reformed theology, (laughs) their understanding of spiritual gifts and baptism, as important as those issues are for the life of the church and membership in his body, the people of God are defined by their belief and their trust in Jesus. That's what defines us. So, So coming to him, the living stone of God's salvation, is what distinguishes the people of God from the entire rest of the world. People of God are defined by their relationship to Jesus. It's identity language. Point number two. Remember, all this is kind of setting us up to see how our identity is connected to our mission. Point number two, the people of God are built together by Jesus. 
So we're not just defined by our relationship to him. The people of God are built together by him. Let's look at, back at verse 4 and 5. When, when you decide to follow Jesus, a profound change takes place in your identity as a human being. Verse 4, as you come to him, that's, that was what point 1 was all about, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, those who have come to Jesus or following Jesus, you too are a living stone. You're being built up or built together as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In other words, Jesus isn't the only stone in the picture. There's more. As his people, we too are living stones. And the spiritual house in verse 5 is what? It's the community of the saints. It's the church. What what Peter says here in verse 5, I would argue ought to, if it hasn't already, change the entire way you think about the local church, including Kingsway. So you ready for this? Listen, Jesus is building us together. That's his point. Jesus is building us together. The, the growth and the health of the church isn't ultimately my work or my job. It's Jesus' work. It's Jesus' job, and and he's building us up into something in particular. What's that? A spiritual house. Spiritual house. Let's break that down. What's a house? Well, it's a a home, right? It's a place where somebody lives. So what's a spiritual house? It's a place where the Spirit of God lives. A place where God himself dwells. And you know what that means for Sunday mornings or any other time when you're gathered with other Christians in this community all throughout the week? It means that in that moment, the most important person in the room is God. Because God is dwelling in his spiritual house called the local church of Jesus Christ. This is his home, his his temple in the New Testament under the New Covenant. God lives in the community of his people gathered members of the local church. So so what does God's presence among us make us? Look at verse 9. But you are, identity language, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do, Do you know what every one of those terms is? Every one of them. Okay, don't get hung up on all of them. Every one of them is a description that God used to talk about Israel in the Old Testament and their allusions to three places you can look up later if you're interested, Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, and Hosea 2. But think about it, lest we miss the main point. Who was the chosen race before Jesus? Before Christ died and rose from the grave. Well, it was the ethnic people of Israel, right? God delivered them from slavery in Egypt so they could be his people. He could be their God. Who is the chosen race today after Jesus? Well, it's all who trust him as the cornerstone of our salvation, right? It's the church of Jesus Christ. Who who was the holy or royal priesthood before Jesus? It was a select group of men who had to be a certain age from a certain Israelite tribe, the tribe of Levi, and they were the only ones who enjoyed 
access into the presence of God in his temple and served him on behalf of the entire nation. Well, who are the priests of God today? They're all God's people, right? Why? Because we've all been sanctified, not just some of us, All of us are set apart as holy through our union with Christ. And so now we all enjoy access into God's presence. And we've all been consecrated to serve him with all we are and all that we have. Who who was the holy nation before Jesus? Who were the people for God's own possession before Jesus? It was the ethnic people of Israel. Who's the holy nation and the people for God's own possession today? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, if, if you're a covenant member of Kingsway, know this. You're not just part of some other religious organization or spiritual group. You've been set apart by God as his holy people. That's who you are. All the blessings and privileges the Lord granted to Israel have been inherited by the church through the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now remember, I said earlier that community isn't something we create, right? It's something God creates for us through the person and work of Christ. And that's true. But it's one thing to have received that glorious identity. We are a community, the people of God, holy nation. It's another thing to become in our life what we already are in Christ. We have to learn how to live in community as members of the local church. And that, that process, notice it's progressive, is being built up as a spiritual house. And that is a work God is doing, helping us learn how to live in community where we have a massive role to play. So we're being built up, but what's our role? Look back at verse 4. When are we being built up? Or how are we being built up? Verse 4, we're being built up as we what? As you come to him. As you come to Jesus. So think of it this way, brothers and sisters. If you want this church to be built up, okay? If you want to strengthen the community of our church, the single best thing you can do is love Jesus with all of your heart. Always. Sometimes people will ask me, Matthew, how can I serve the church? How can I strengthen this church? Like, put me to work, man. Well, I'll get to that, but here's the first thing you need to know, and it's not a throwaway. Come to Jesus as your treasure. Come to Jesus as your wisdom. Come to Jesus as your master. Love him and keep on loving him more than anything else because that is what God will use to build us up as a spiritual house. It's as we come to Jesus over and over and over again that the spiritual house is built up. When you trust and obey Jesus, this church is strengthened. When you don't trust and obey Jesus, this church is harmed. Every act of individual obedience or disobedience doesn't just affect you or your family or your kids, okay? It has a corporate effect on the health and unity of our church. It's part of what it means to be a member. When you are loving Jesus, this church is growing. When you are not loving Jesus, when you're disobeying him, you you might just think, well, you know, I'm just sort of off here in my miserable little corner suffering the consequences. No, you're not. If you've been added to the body, you're not coming to Jesus, you're hurting the body. God is deeply committed, friends, to distinguishing his people, the church of Jesus Christ, from the rest of the world. 
deeply committed to that. And, and sometimes people talk about God, and I hear this, maybe you've heard this, as if he was kind of into the whole having an exclusive people thing in the Old Testament. But then he got a love makeover, and now he just kind of opens his arms wide to everybody. Well, that idea, it's neither true nor loving. It's not true and it's not loving. It's not true because God is just as concerned today with having what? A people for his own possession that are distinct from the world. That's the point. And it's not loving. Think about this. Because the most loving thing God can do for the world is distinguish his people from the world so the world knows where to look in order to see the character of God in the community of his people. So the people of God are are built together by Jesus for the express purpose of distinguishing us from the world. And that's why baptism and church membership, going public, as it were, with your allegiance to King Jesus, matters. Because God's mission for his people is accomplished through the distinct and identifiable nature of his people. Point number two, the people of God are built together by Jesus. But as you can already hopefully hear, there's a goal in view here. What's that? Point three, the people of God exist to declare the glory of Jesus. So we're not just defined by coming to Jesus in faith and obedience, repentance of sin. We're not just built together by Jesus, but that being built together, that distinction from the world. This is the people of God. This is not the people of God. That very thing that that grates on our ears. It's like, that's not unifying. That's not tolerating. That's divisive. Exactly. It's good. (laughs) Because that very distinctness has a purpose. It has a mission. The people of God exist to declare the glory of Jesus. So look back at verse 5. Why why is God building us into this spiritual house, this holy priesthood? He's building us together to, purpose language, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That can just sound like religious ease. So let's think about that, okay? Think about that. How how do we offer spiritual sacrifices? Sacrifices. I, I thought... Since Jesus died, we don't, we don't need any more sacrifices for sin. Or, or maybe, I know, maybe the spiritual sacrifice means that, that loving God used to be kind of following all these rules on the outside, but now it's just kind of a heart thing where I, you know, I just value him in meaningful ways. No. <laughs> no, not at all. To offer spiritual sacrifices means we what? We devote our entire person all that we are, we think, we say, we feel, we have, we do, to worshiping and serving King Jesus in the power of the Spirit in response to the Father's mercy on us in the gospel. That's what spiritual sacrifices are. As Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of them, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Christian, you're the sacrifice. We didn't go from Sheep being sacrificed to no sacrifice. We went from sheep to Jesus as the once-for-all sacrifice that makes us right with God. And then in view of that mercy, that perfect once-for-all sacrifice, 
we now offer our bodies as a sacrifice of worship to God. So what is it that makes the imperfect, can we just be honest, the imperfect offering of our obedience to Jesus in every area of life acceptable to God? It's the cleansing blood of Christ. Right? So think about this. The spiritual sacrifice of our obedience is acceptable to God because all that is sinful, all that is unholy, all that is unrighteous and imperfect in our obedience is forgiven for the sake of Christ. So God, please hear this, Christian. God isn't waiting to delight in your obedience until you get it all right. Think about that. It's not as if until your obedience is perfect, you bring God no joy. That's not acceptable to me. Keep trying, you know, keep trying, but better luck next time. Keep praying, keep, keep reading the word. You're close, you know, you're close. It's like the Peyton Manning commercial, close, almost. No, God delights in wholehearted baby steps at obedience because all that is still unrighteous in them is forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's good news. Now, here's the critical connection and what I think makes 1 Peter 2 so helpful. And we're going to focus here on the second part of verse 9 in this third point. I think few Christians would argue that we're supposed to glorify God through the obedience of our lives. But here's what I think we tend to completely miss. Okay, We completely miss that proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, okay? What's that? Showing the world how beautiful and satisfying Jesus is through the way we live. That's not something we can do in isolation from one another. That's what we tend to miss, okay? And in fact, 1 Peter 2.9 goes way further than what I've just said. The whole reason the people of God are built together in Christ Jesus, point number two, is so that we may together as a community do what? proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So notice Peter isn't just saying we have a unique identity. Check it out. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, etc. He's saying you have a unique identity for the purpose of accomplishing a unique mission. And in fact, it's unique identity as the united people of God that enables us to accomplish our unique mission. Okay, why, why do I linger on all this? Well, because I think we tend to view community as Christians as something that exists for our sake. Can we be honest? For me. Because when we think of a strong biblical community, we think of a place where I'm cared for, where I'm loved, where I'm helped to follow Jesus. And sometimes we even join a community group, a small group, decide which one to join based on whichever one gives me the greatest sense of connection and belonging. We do that. Now, are those things bad? No, they're not bad, okay? Should a biblical community be a place where Christians are cared for and loved and helped to follow Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But the whole point of 1 Peter 2.9 is that God hasn't made us a community through the personal work of Christ so that we can be comfortable. 
so that we can be cared for and so we can feel connected as good as those things are. He's made us a community so that we can proclaim his excellencies as a community to people who are not yet part of our community, but perceive in our community a glimpse of the all-satisfying splendor of Jesus. Verse 9, in other words, isn't about individual isolated Christians proclaiming the glory of God. It's about the community of the church proclaiming the glory of God together. So through the way we serve one another, we confront the world with the love of God. Through the way we correct and admonish one another, we confront the world with the truthfulness of God. Through the way we resolve conflict with one another, even when it's hard and messy, we confront the world with the reconciling power of God. Through the way we pray for each other, we confront the world with the compassion of God. In other words, proclaiming the glory of Christ isn't something you can do in isolation. It's something that gets done together. And the whole point, look at verse 11, of the corporate call to holiness here, saying no to the passions of our flesh, sinful passions, so we can say yes to God, is to, what's the point of all that? Is to practice, look at verse 12, the kind of good deeds that cause even those who persecute us to have a change of heart. To go from disobeying the word of God, rejecting Jesus, to glorifying God, verse 12. So what does Peter say will bring about that change? What's going to make someone in the world go from rejecting Jesus to glorifying Jesus? Well, the answer is seeing the excellencies of Jesus in the community of his people. It's seeing through the way we live together that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. They have to what? Look back at verse 12. They have to see your good deeds. They have to what? Look back at verse 9. Hear how together we are declaring. You can't escape the fact that requires words. The goodness of Jesus in the way we do community. And I think there's some significant implications here. So I want to end with some some very practical encouragements for all of us when it comes to the, the point of community or the goal or the mission of community. How does this play out in real life? So, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that the guys in your community group, if you're not sure what that is, that's just small groups of ideally 8 to 10 adults who in this church are getting together throughout the week to help each other follow Jesus. Imagine the guys in your group go out for drinks one night and one of you brings along a non-Christian friend from work. Imagine that. Does that mean you were suddenly unable incapacitated, restricted, and prohibited from talking about challenges in your marriage or confessing your sin to one another or asking for prayer? No, of course not, right? Might it require an extra measure of humility that's probably good for your soul? Absolutely. It's always easier to be vulnerable with people who are more like us. And there are circumstances where Wisdom dictates sharing the the fine china of your life with one or two brothers or sisters in Christ before you might share it with the rest of the world. But the whole point of verse 12, look there, is that the world needs to see our good deeds. They need to see them. They They need to be, in other words, close enough 
to our community as a church that they can perceive the glory of Christ in the way we do community. If they're not close enough to our community, they can't see Jesus. They won't see Jesus just because we're in this building every Sunday, folks, and there's a sign out on Charter Colony. That's not going to get it done. Does that mean people need to, because sometimes I hear this, belong before they believe? Should we treat someone as if they are a Christian in hope that they will eventually come to Christ? Of course not, right? You can't, you can't truly belong in the community of the church unless you believe in Jesus. Believing always comes before belonging. That's the way the gospel works. So seeing our good deeds doesn't mean belonging before believing. Think about this. It means observing before we enter. So to illustrate this, it's the difference between a church that's like a shop with no windows, where you have to walk through the door before you can see what's inside, versus a church that's like a shop with big bay windows where what you see inside compels you to enter. That's what we should be like. The second shop. And that's what our community group should be like. So earlier this year, I gave you a challenge. Gave you a challenge from Colossians 1 to invite at least one non-Christian friend, if you remember this church, to study God's word with you this year. And, And today I have a challenge for your community group. My first challenge was individual. I've waited five months to give a challenge to your whole community group. For those of you who are here in a group, the next couple times you're together, I want you to talk about how you can spend time together with people who don't know Jesus. Together. Okay, so don't don't limit yourself to church events. Don't think, well, we can just all invite our friends to come on Sunday morning. They'll probably say no, but at least I'll invite them, and then Matthew will be happy. No. (laughs) Be creative. Be creative. Last year, one of the families in our church, I loved this, they hosted a Christmas party where they invited their non-Christian friends from all over the place and a bunch of friends from Kingsway. Imagine that. And you know what? We actually got along. (laughs) And we had a great time. We had a fantastic time. And afterward, I learned that God actually used that evening to break down some serious misconceptions in the mind of some of their friends about what Christians are really like. That was mission through community. You know, if you're taking your kids to the park, those of you are moms, you could invite someone from church and a non-Christian friend from the neighborhood to join you. I'm, I'm not talking about relational matchmaking. If you're a non-Christian friend here listening to me this morning, you're thinking, what are you just trying to like set me up so you can pressure me? Into-? I'm not. Not at all. I'm talking about recognizing that the community of the church is our most powerful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that if the world isn't close enough to our community, they're never going to see the excellencies of Jesus. They're they're not going to come to Christ if we're off cornered in a corner somewhere doing our community thing. Don't get close because if you get close, I can't do community. No. In fact, it's not just you still can do community. What's 1 Peter telling us? The whole point of our community, the the reason we have this identity as a community is so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. 
together. Maybe your community group needs to start by simply praying for friends who don't know the Lord together, praying for boldness, for compassion, and then look for a chance to take an interest in your neighbors together or love them together. The whole point is that we don't, we don't pursue authentic community and then like, okay, break, and then go love our neighbors. <laughs> we love our neighbors as a community. That the community of the church is a gift of God's mercy designed to advance the mission of the gospel. That's the point. Why do we know that? Because the people of God are defined by their relationship to Jesus. The people of God are built together by Jesus. And the people of God exist to declare the glory of Jesus. And it's that last point that I've been lingering on because I think that's where the Lord really wants us to grow as a church this year. So I'm going to have another speak to members moment here if you'll indulge me. If you're part of a community group, all, your, your, all the group leaders know this already, but we are going to go through this little red book in 2019. And this little red book is called, because some of you are squinting, Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. It's written by Max Stiles, and it's available in both English and Spanish in the bookshop as well as online. And if you're part of a community group at Kingsway, I want you to pick up a copy in the next few weeks, because this book is all about how together we show the world what Jesus looks like. There are a lot of books out there written for Christians that talk about how to share your faith, explain the gospel individually, one-on-one conversations, and those are great. Those are, we need that. But what I think God really wants to help us understand here, especially from 1 Peter 2, is there's a way that as a whole community, he wants to use us together to show the world what Jesus is like. We live in a culture It's increasingly hostile and resistant to the claims of Christianity. I don't think I need to tell you that if you're a Christian. But that really leaves us with a choice, friends. And this is probably my single greatest concern for this local church for the next 15 to 20 years. We have a choice. We can either pull away and circle the wagons and have self-righteous conversations about how bad all those people are out there. And when we don't want to get called out for it, we'll just do it on social media. Or, or we can be faithful ambassadors. A shop with with big bay windows. Sojourners and exiles, but faithful ambassadors nonetheless in a foreign land that, that show the world through the way we practice community that Jesus is immeasurably better and bigger and more beautiful than they ever imagined. Where are they going to see that? They're going to see that in the community of the church. By the grace of God, I want us to make that choice, friends. I want us to go that direction because the community we enjoy is a gift designed to advance the mission of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, We're grateful that you have given us in Christ Jesus a unique identity. We are a people. We are a community. You create that for us. And then, Lord, you have given us in Christ Jesus a unique mission. And, Father, I pray very specifically right now that whereas Christians, whereas members of this local church, 
we have thought of community as an end in and of itself. We have thought that it's really all about me and meeting my needs or me meeting other people's needs. But it's all about Christians. End of story. Father, I pray you would forgive us. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for settling for less than the proclamation of your glory through our community to the world that so needs to see you in us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would really help us as a church this year. That you would take this vision of proclaiming the glory of Christ through the way we do community and and give us opportunities to draw near to those who don't know you so that they would see in the way we do life confession, encouragement, exhortation, serving, the, the whole kit and caboodle, how big and great and good and beautiful and satisfying and sufficient Jesus Christ is for all we need. Father, I pray you would work that in our hearts, that you would even use this book study this year in our small groups to get that done. Give us an ambition for your glory that exceeds our hunger for our own comfort. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.